0: The Low Post is presented by Amazon Music. Did you know you could be listening to this episode of The Low Post ad-free on Amazon Music? And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a Wednesday morning. Oh, you thought we were going to get two sweeps. You thought we'd have eight days off before the NBA Finals. You thought this was going to be easy for the Miami Heat. It might still be easy. Who knows? No! The Boston Celtics, the most confusing team in the NBA go into Miami, and, and I don't think I've ever seen a team do the thing where they let go of the rope in one game in a playoff series, and that letting go of the rope takes them to within a game of elimination and turns the series into a blowout and come back the next game and fight with, with grit and precision and calculation for their season. Usually, like I thought back to 2019 Milwaukee-Boston, when Boston won the first game and then it just kept on getting worse and worse and worse and worse and, worse, and 3-1 Milwaukee. And you were like, game five seems like it's going to be a Bucks rollover the way this is going. And it was a Bucks rollover. And this was not. Mr. Goldsberry, how are you, sir?
1: I am well. It's good to see you, Zach. Uh, I watched that game last night with with very just open mind i didn't know what to expect and and it turns out we got the outcome of of, like you said boston getting off the mat and making you my friend get on an amtrak train and travel up the eastern coast uh to game five and
0: let me tell you this if you're on the quiet car be quiet the quiet car is called the (laughs) quiet car keep your cell phone conversations to a minimum people yeah, just cell phone or cell phone. No cell phone talk on the. On I the don't know what car. the hell the rules are. I am a. You will not hear a peep out of me unless I'm unless I'm right. asked a question by the Amtrak staffers. Anyway, um, before we get to Boston, Miami, and and whether this is already perilous for the eighth seeded Miami Heat, who need I remind you had a negative point differential, and. Um, We're not a team that appeared to be building towards some late season crescendo, (laughs) salvaging a subpar regular season. We're a team that got shellacked by the Hawks in the play-in game and was wheezing to an ignominious demise against the Chicago Bulls, who probably are looking at all this and saying, hey, should we give Vooch four years, $9 billion? We're right there. We're right there on the doorstep. You're not right there on the doorstep. Uh, before we get to all that, I wanted to start with, just quickly, w- Denver Nuggets fans, you know I love the Nuggets, you know I love Jokic, you know I love watching them play. We're going to have so much time to talk about the Nuggets that it is only natural that we are using this time to talk about the greatest player in the world suggesting he might retire, to what the hell is going to happen to Boston if they win, or if they lose this series to, or if they win this series, I guess, to the heat in this improbable run. But I do want to just lead off with, Mr. Goldsberry The Nuggets are in the finals for the first time In the history of the NBA history Of their franchise um, Swept the Lakers Each win more clutch and impressive Than the last seemingly I just want to get your quick reflections On, on watching this Nuggets team and, and what if anything You have found your brain Thinking about now that they're in the finals
1: well, small market, quote unquote, Western Conference teams have been uh, disrespected for years in sports media and the general NBA discourse. So welcome aboard that train, Denver. Uh, you are being overlooked, uh, but you have international stars that that tend to get overlooked as well. Uh, welcome aboard that train. Um, but Nikola Jokic does look like the best player in the world. I was not one of those people who was saying that. I was always a Giannis guy over the last few years. Uh, And Jamal Murray. So the combination, Zach, here's what I'd ask you. The combination of Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic, the best duo in postseason history since? I don't know what the answer to that is, but that's where my brain has been going. But they got a 50-40-90 split on 30 points. That's what Jamal just did. And then, obviously, Jokic getting a triple-double with 30 points and doing everything. I don't know of a better one-two combination uh, that I've seen in the postseason in a very long time.
0: Well, I, I was gonna say I might I might have to I might have to pump the brakes on your maybe cut the brakes, do, do like cut veer you off into That's the sand, into the sandbags on the side of the road that are there for runaway trucks. Cause I they gotta win a title before I start, you know, like Shaq Kobe, uh yeah. Jordan Pippen, uh LeBron Wade, uh all the warriors I'm um, saying like,
1: that's a long time ago that's long well the warriors not a long time ago but the other ones you mentioned I'm just that's where my brain is going I'm starting to think like that with these two guys in this exact playoff run
0: Here's where my brain is going The great thing about sports is you never know when you're going to learn something interesting about a team And I think back to the end of the 17-18 regular season It was a season that started off disappointingly for the Nuggets. They had signed Paul Millsap in free agency. They were all in on Jokic. It was Jamal Murray's second season. And the integration of Millsap was clunky to start with. The offense wasn't flowing. They kind of just were eh. They were a 500 team for 70 games. But they, they were still mathematically in the race for number eight. And they had made a big deal of like, our goal is to make number eight and in the last let's say 2 weeks of the season they essentially had to win out to have any chance at number 8. And I think they won 6 or 7 in a row to end that season. A lot of them against good competition. They they like they they did not one 2 3 Cancun. They did not have half an eye on their summer plans. They went all in. Won every game and forced the winner take all for the 8th seed season finale in Minnesota which they lost in overtime to the Minnesota team that had Jimmy Butler that. on it. And Jokic went bananas in that game and nearly carried them to a win. And sometimes, you know, you have a tendency to look away at the end of the regular season, even to a team that's like, eh, what chance do they really have at forcing this one game winner take all thing? Kind of like Phoenix in the bubble. Like, what chance do they really have at trying to get into the playoffs? They're so far behind. And you look at them and you're like, oh, there's a toughness here. There's a determination here, there's a will here that is interesting. Next year, not only do they make the playoffs, they get to the second round of the playoffs and they lose in game 7 at home to Portland. CJ McCollum carries C.J. the Blazers over to the finish line. Dame is totally gassed. Portland to their credit finds a way to win. Heartbreaker for Denver. Um that's uh that's 1819 1920 bubble. Weird season, bubble. bubble. Kind of like the Nuggets run to the conference finals kind of was a little bit dismissed. Like a lot of the runs in the bubbles were in the bubbles. The bubble were dismissed, Uh, humiliated the Clippers in seven games coming back from 3-1, had come back from 3-1 against Utah in the first round. And I think the double 3-1 comeback is part of the reason that people didn't quite know what to make of that was like, was that, were those collapses by the other teams or they comebacks by Denver? The first three or four games of that Utah series, like they couldn't get any stops, were those more indicative of, of what the Nuggets were? People kind of didn't know. Those were real to me. Like I remember writing a, a preview of game seven of Clippers Nuggets, and I knew that all of the discourse was about the Clippers and how disastrous this would be for the Clippers in the first year of Kawhi and PG to blow a 3 1 lead when they were just loaded for bear that season. And I made my preview about the Nuggets instead and in about building from that game in 2018 against Minnesota to that game in Game 7. And, of course, they obliterate the Clippers in Game 7. Flash forward to the next year, out of the bubble, in comes Aaron Gordon. They look just utterly dominant. Jamal Murray gets hurt at the end of the season. And they go through this two-year waiting period. And they're off over here to the side. People kind of just, oh, this Jokic MVP, like, that's awesome. Look, he's carrying these guys, a couple MVPs. To their credit, they win around in 20 uh 2022 or 2021 rather before losing to um Phoenix in the second round in a sweep that was not great but they won a playoff round like so without without Murray it's a big deal the next year they lose to the warriors in the first round the warriors end up winning the title they're off to the side we haven't seen the real nuggets now we see the real nuggets and boy are they real and they're right. here and their time is now and that two year period was part interruption And part continued growth, particularly of Jokic, part tweaking of the roster in preparation for this year, for this playoff run with the Bruce Browns and KCPs, the guards who enable more defensive flexibility, more 3 and D stuff, all the more Aaron Gordon integration with Jokic, all of it peaking now. That's a five-year arc. It's so cool to see a five-year arc like that. That makes sense narratively. It's almost like back in the 80s when teams had to lose and lose and lose and like get around further every year, get around further. The the Bulls got to get by the Pistons. The Pistons got to get by the Celtics. It's not quite that direct one-on-one rivalry with anybody in the West, but I think it's a cool, when you really zoom out and look at it, it's a cool half-decade arc that their time is now, their time is here, and they're waiting in the finals. And I think they, they're going to be favored, I, I think, no okay. matter who gets out of it, even if Boston somehow pulls this off and the Celtics have home court advantage. That's my brain on Denver.
1: Yeah, they cook their own food in, in an era of super teams and quick fixes. Like you said, a five-year arc, a lot like sort of the Boston Celtics or the Heat to some degree. But, you know, I think that's, that's interesting. Um, one thing I would add is they've always broken down. I stole this from you back in the day, my dude. I believe it was you. A lot of us use it now. You got to be a top 10 defense to win the NBA title. It's some sort of rule. It's some sort of law. Um, They look like they're going to be the first team to really violate that rule in a long time. I've been really skeptical of them, even in this last few years, because their playoff defense hasn't been very good. I think they ranked 12th, 12th, and 16th in the last three tournaments. Uh, Here, they're first in offense. They have the best net rating. And that defense isn't great, but it's gone from bad to sort of average. I think they're eighth in the tournament right now. Um, I like and they're did you offense, call it the tournament? I heard someone in these announcers say that. And I was like, oh, that does sound kind of cool, you know? Uh, but anyway, Zach, I wanted to get your thoughts on that just briefly that law that you, I think you brought it into me. Well, and maybe I, Sports I Illustrated Era, Zach.
0: Yeah, we're talking now 13, 12 years ago. I, I wrote a piece back then about how an elite defense was a slightly, slightly better predictor of championship equity than an elite offense. And in the last 10 or 12 years, that has flipped a little bit, and it's more skewed a tiny bit toward elite offenses being a – I mean, in reality, you have to be good at everything. This is the highest stage yeah. of, the, of the league. But the model for the Nuggets was always the 2017 Cavs, I thought, who were a, just a dynamite, gangbusters offensive team and, like, a good enough defensive team – and in a normal NBA season with a normal landscape of teams that did not include a salary cap spike-enabled Kevin Durant to the Warriors transaction, that team, I think, would have won the title. And they're all very confident that they would have won the title. And I've been thinking about that team a lot because of LeBron this week hinting that he might maybe possibly consider for a second retirement and getting all the sort of LeBron thoughts in my brain in order and the 4-6 and or whatever is record in the finals that's going to always be the sort of thing held against him in the Jordan comparison and how the Durant thing really sort of changed like that would look different had the Durant thing not happened but it happened but I want to talk about that I want to talk about Celtic seat I will open the floor to you what did you see last night from Boston and or from Miami that should give the people any belief that the Celtics could break the 150-team losing streak of teams that are down <laughs> 0-3 in series? And I'm not asking that question facetiously. I'm asking you for real. What did you yeah. see that that seems sustainable?
1: Um, I would say the headline is the Celtics look like the Celtics. Uh, for the first time in this series, they played great defense. They made their three-point shots. And this guy named Jason Tatum was visible down the stretch. I expected all of those things to be true coming into these conference finals, but it took Boston until Game 4 to manifest their normal identity. And let me say this. Let me get the people excited. Given these teams regular season profiles, if there was ever, Zach Lowe, to be a 3-0 comeback in this league, this would be a pretty good candidate for three reasons from what I saw last night. First, an eight seed had the 3-0 lead on a two seed. The two seed is healthier than the eight seed. And there is some crazy shooting luck that helps explain why Miami had that 3-0 lead. That went away in game four as well. Now, I'm not saying Boston will do this, but what I'm saying is to be crystal clear, if I ever had to bet on a team down three to one in a seven gamer, this would be a tempting candidate. Uh remember, Boston ranks second in both offense and defense. That's juggernaut stuff. Those teams usually win it all. Um and I thought what I saw from their defense in the second half and Jason Tatum in the second half. The three-point shooting sort of turned right-side out when you look at these two teams' regular season shooting profiles. So for me, it was almost like that's the kind of game I predicted at the beginning of the series. That's how I thought Boston would win. Assert themselves on D, make more threes, have a great scorer down the stretch. Um, So that's what I saw. What did you see, though?
0: Well, so a lot of it is make-miss, right? Like the Heat had been out-shooting expectations and the Celtics had been undershooting expectations for whatever you think those expectations are worth, um, 18 of 45 on threes for Boston, eight of 32 for Miami. That's the game. Smart makes That's three. Grant Williams comes in and makes makes a few. Horford finally shows up and makes shots. That's the whole game. And the Heat are actually getting fewer threes in this series and fewer shots at the rim and more mid range shots than they did in the regular season. That is something to monitor. So a lot of that is the game. I'm glad you brought up the history. So a couple of days ago, when the when the heat went up three zero, I said, "Look, it. This does not look like a Boston team that has any life left." And this is this is right off the top of my head in in just rumbling around because there's no way to quantify this really and do a deep research dive on it. I just don't remember a team like I said, just letting go of the rope in a in a series they were trailing badly. And showing up again like that. Usually that game, that game three, means the game four is Cancun time. And it was not Cancun time. So, And I said, on paper, which is not worth very much paper. I mean, it's worth something. I don't know. This is clearly the team with the best chance ever. At coming back from 3-0. and then I said to myself, "You know what? I should probably have our stats people look that up just to make sure that's okay." Because, you're, like you said, we're talking about a number one seed or number two seed, number one point differential, number eight seed with a negative point differential. Home court is massive, massive. If they win Game Five, they just they've already got one road game. They're they're one road game away from potentially getting it home for seven. That's a big big deal. So I asked our stats team, "Can you? Is there any way to look this up?" Like whether this is true. So here's what they did. They found me every instance of any playoff series in which a top two seed was down 3-0 and went through them. And it is crystal clear that this is the best chance ever on paper, Miami people, on paper, (laughs) of a team. There have been nine instances. Here they are. Ready? Yeah. 84-85, the second seed Bucks against the third-seed Sixers. A lot of these series are second-round series between two teams of relatively equal caliber. 95 Magic finals against six-seed Rockets. The Magic were the number one seed. The Rockets were the six-seed. Rockets were defending champion, had acquired Clyde Drexler in the middle of the season, totally changed their team. 2000 Utah Jazz, the second seed, goes down 3-0 to the third-seed Blazers. 2-3, right? Like, blah, blah, blah. 2002... The number one seeded New Jersey Nets go down 3-0 to the number three seed Los Angeles Lakers in the finals. We all know the Nets were not favored in that series. And that was the best three seed of all time, I think, right? Probably so. 2007, the number two seed Cleveland Cavaliers, the young LeBron James, go down 3-0 to the number three seed San Antonio Spurs in the finals. Mm -hmm. We all know that's not a normal favorite underdog situation I'm going to skip one and come back to it 2011 the number two seed Lakers go down 3-0 to the number three seed Mavericks the, the eventual champions in the second round get swept again 2-3 two, 2018 the number one seed Toronto Raptors go down 3-0 to the number four seed Cleveland Cavaliers with LeBron James we you oh, know no it, it was LeBron for a while there in those series and then in the bubble, the one-seed Bucks play the five-seed Heat and go down 3-0, and that's the bubble. That and Giannis got injured in the middle of that series. The one I skipped is the one that I found myself actually thinking about in the last couple of days. 2010, the number two-seed Orlando Magic go down 3-0 in the conference finals against the four-seed Boston Celtics. And I thought of that series not because... I think it's comparable at all. You go through, those are the only nine. That's it. There has never been a series like this where a team of Boston's caliber is down 3-0 to a team of Miami's caliber, resume-based. If you want to say this Miami team has become a completely different animal, that's fine. You're probably right. Right. Um, I thought about that 2010 Boston-Orlando series only because it was 3-0 Boston and um, Orlando had home court. And Orlando won game four in Boston, and it was 3-1. And right away, you just looked at the roadmap of the series back there, and were like, ooh, this could get spicy pretty fast. They won game five in Orlando to make it 3-2, something very few teams in the 3-0 hole have ever done. And it was back to Boston for game six. And all of a sudden, that game six with the KG, Ray, Pierce team trying to get back to the finals after the KG injury the previous year, trying to – they're older, they're – tougher they're just not quite as good but they have a mental toughness finding a way all of a sudden from 3-0 to 3-2 that game six in Boston felt like all the pressure was on the Celtics it felt like a must win because you lose that game you're going down to Orlando for game seven with the weight of all the world on you and that's just a series I thought about because Boston's going home for game five if they win that game that's yeah. what that game 6 in Miami is going to feel like for the Heat. And that's the power of home court advantage. Like I very cl- I'm not look I'm not saying Boston is doing this. And in fact, part of I mean, part of the the punishment for frittering away away games 1 and 2 at home or letting Miami really seize them from you with just bad end game execution, all the stuff that has plagued Boston for years now is your margin for error is now nothing. Like we can sit here and say on paper and you win game five at home and there'll be favorites in here and then and they have game seven, blah, 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 blah. Your margin for error is nothing. Your margin, you are one Max struce seven for 10 from three game away from going home. You have no exactly. margin for an outlier good on their end or bad on your end. So there's still obviously massive underdogs to do this, but I just thought the history was interesting.
1: Yeah, and we zeroed in on the same concept. If ever a team was going to do this through the analog, the logs of, of NBA history, hey, this is the best bet. Uh, it's not a good bet necessarily. It's the best bet though. Um, I think you mentioned like the weight of the world with that Celtics magic series. I feel like that's something that's already transferred here and it might be too late. But yeah, if Boston wins game five. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about the Celtics is that you know they're now 10 and 11 at home the home court advantage that we associate with that building has somehow depleted over the last few years uh the celtics are the only team in nba postseason history uh, to have an under 500 record over a two postseason span at Oof. home with a minimum of 15 home games so it's not that boston that i grew up going to covering the league and just being really intimidating those heat games where lebron had a hard time even though they were a better uh team I, those are the ones i'll always think back to Um, But, yeah, I think the weight of the world shifts to Jimmy Butler and Eric Spolstra's shoulders if they win that game five, like you're saying, and setting up a game six in Miami where the Heat have played really well until game four of this series, all playoffs long. Um, So I think it comes down to game five, and there's two things I'm looking at aside from the shooting, which I want to talk about a little bit more. Jalen Brown's offense and Jason Tatum's defense have to get better for the Celtics to reassert themselves at home in game five. And if both of those things happen, uh, I think we're gonna be talking about history if there's a game six, talking about it again, not projecting it. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home.
0: So, you mentioned the shooting. I, I said eight of 32 heat threes. I, I thought, particularly in the first quarter, Boston had some defensive hiccups chasing their shooters around, and the Heat yeah. missed three or four good threes. You're not going to make all of them. You make two of them, the game starts to feel a little different. They missed them. And after that, I thought Boston's defense was pretty clean the rest of the game. Just right. if you. Fewer of those hiccups that have marked their bad performances, miscommunications, blowing switches, just going under screens against guys you can't go under screens against all that. That kind of that kind of went away. Um, I, the the difference I really noticed from Boston was in their passing. I thought it was their best passing game of the series, and I thought schematically they made a very clear emphasis on um, when Zeller or Bam blitz the pick and roll and they put two on the ball against Tatum. We're not going to drive into the teeth of that blitz because Bam's going to snatch the ball from us. We're not going to lob this lollipop into Rob Williams at the foul line and ask him to make a play in space, which he's okay at, but not great at. We're going to have a guy ready on the wing next to you as an outlet right away. That trap comes, boom, hit that guy on the wing. Sometimes it was Jalen Brown in the corner. If the, if the first pick and roll is on the sideline, and just just hit him for the sake of hitting him. Just hit him for the sake of keeping the ball moving and making Miami's defense execute four and five rotations in a possession. It was a clear plan of just release valve passing, get the ball moving, play kind of like Miami plays, just movement for the sake of movement, movement for the sake of let's see what happens if we make them do three or four different things at a fast pace. Maybe they'll make a mistake. And... It wasn't anything fancy, but that that release valve pass was there, and I thought it worked, and it got Boston into gear, and it got them some good looks that sustained them until the thing that they just really need and the way they won Game 6 in Philly, Game 7 against Philly, was Tatum just making Tatum shots. And he hunted the Gabe Vincent mismatch much more than he had in the previous games and just shot over him. And that's what great players do. And the Celtics, if they're going to actually pull that off, pull this off or extend it to six, whatever, they're going to need Jason Tatum and and Jalen Brown too, although he looks kind of shaky on offense, they're just going to need him to make shots like that, that he hadn't been making in the first three games. But I thought their process was with intentionality, much better and much more team oriented than it had been in the previous couple of games
1: the passing thing is huge uh I did a piece on quote unquote quantifying heat culture last week uh a lot of that coming from the hustle stats but largely Zach they're really good at deflecting passes and turning those into to live ball turnovers and getting loose balls these guys are are built for that um Tatum I want to come back to something you just said like Jimmy Butler on Jason Tatum is not a winning matchup for the Boston Celtics and they have to find ways to get Jason Tatum on Caleb Martin on Max Strews, on Gabe Vincent I have some numbers to back it up start with Jimmy who is acting as his primary defender according to second spectrum uh Tatum is six of 17 this whole series that's his primary defender with with um Jimmy Butler as the closest defender that's not good that uh field goal percentage of 35 is not a winning number He's shooting over fifty percent against Caleb Martin on twenty-three attempts, over fifty percent against Max Struess on just eleven, but over fifty percent against Gabe Vincent. Much more efficient offense. They, you, you said it yourself. They need to hunt those Mitch because Ma- he can't get going with Butler. Like that's the wrong that's the wrong thread to pull on uh, in these half-court offense sets. And and to me, he's the only All NBA player in the series, and he didn't play like it through three games. And again. I- Wait, you, wait, first wait, wait, team, all wait, 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 First wait, team. First team. Okay, first I was going to say team. Jimmy
0: Butler. Jimmy Butler might come through your laptop and punch you in the face just hey. uh, upon you uttering that sentence. Watch Thank out. you
1: for correcting me. Uh, and and so I think getting getting Jason Tatum going against these secondary defensive options is a huge thing for Joe Missoula and that half court offense to figure out. <laughs> and no disrespect to the great Jimmy Butler or Jalen Brown, his second team, right? So um, it, this is particularly important to me. Zach to watch for another reason, because I don't know if Jalen Brown's hand is 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 hurt or what, but I had this, this stat for you. He's made seven of his 37 jump shots in this series. That's 19%. That's like Josh Smith stuff. That's Ooh, like, let Josh this guy. Josh Smith catching
0: strays unexpectedly. Hey. Sorry, Josh Smith. I always liked you, Josh.
1: Hey, he's an avid listener of the low post. We all know that.
0: But, Great passer. I love to watch Josh Smith pass. All right. We're, I'm sorry.
1: So what are we doing? Like, If I'm Miami, am I, am I approaching let Jalen shoot territory? Maybe I'm not going there, but it's not as scary as I thought it was coming into this series. Uh, again, that just puts extra burden on Jason Tatum getting going on offense in a world where Jalen is, is either hurt or just really cold with his shot. So I, I think that you brought that up, and I'm glad you did. How do the Celtics continue to get Jason Tatum against these secondary defenders in the half court.
0: Well, and the guy they targeted um, early in every game and are targeting early in every game is Love, uh, who's guarding Horford because they don't want him on any of the Celtics perimeter players. And if the Celtics continue to start small with Horford as the only mm. big and Derek White in the starting five, which you know, that lineup is actually plus nine in the series, so I would expect them, I guess, to continue doing it. That's the primary reason is because it's hard for Love defensively, and so. One of the things I'm wondering is, I should the, should the Heat either start Caleb Martin or just play Caleb Martin more? Love is minus one for the series. Caleb Martin is plus 25 in 132 minutes, or the Heat are plus 25. Wow. And Butler, Martin, Bam, as a trio, is plus 34 in 59 minutes. Both those numbers are striking to me because I don't think that, 50, that 59 is not as high as I expected it to be because those have been their three best players in this series. I think they might just have to play together a little bit more. Um, I also would expect like the Heat watched the film and saw that the Celtics were prepared for them to put two on the ball and blitz and how they passed out of it. You saw the Heat start switching more with Bam toward the end of the game. They actually switched more screens in that game than they had in any prior game in the series, according to second spectrum, that was maybe a hint of something. Similarly, the return of the zone at the end of the Mm -hmm. game. And and Tatum heard it with one little flash mid range jumper um, as, as a way to just sort of, it it was sort of that to me signaled a, we're behind try something new and B Boston was ready for us to come out and play one style of defense. Let's mix it up a little bit.
1: Yeah. I noticed that same Tatum flashed the free throw line and put a puncture who, Puncture wound right into that zone right away. Um, and I, I I do think when Boston struggles on offense, it's turnovers. It's turnovers. And, and you mentioned the crisp passing and the smart half-court sets. Um, and when Miami is thriving on defense, they're forcing those exact turnovers. So that's an indicator species in this weird Eastern Conference Finals ecosystem for me to watch going forward the other one I, I want to come back to this is the three-point shooting uh I have another sort of dumb guy stat here uh but Boston is now nine and two when they make 12 three-pointers and they're zero and six when they don't and last night they made 18 uh in the first two or first first three games I think they averaged 10.3 made threes they lost all three of those games obviously uh, but that's that's more of a dumb guy stat, because, again, I think it points to clean looks for the role players and the role players knocking them down. So I I, I picked part Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown a little bit, but the Al Horford threes that they lived on all season, um, Marcus Smart hitting one uh, to, to his credit. Derek White has been very good shooting the ball. Grant Williams has been very good shooting the ball. And again, it's sort of that's what I came to expect from the Missoula era Celtics was our three point. Machine, I think they rank second in three-point makes per game and sixth in three-point percentage. One of the best three-point shooting offenses in the NBA. Just laid an egg in the first three games. Uh, And last night, they showed us what they look like when they're making those threes. And they're they're hard to keep up with as a scoring team when they're making those threes, Zach. Uh, And that's why I'm sort of really zeroing in on that, too, when Boston has the ball.
0: All very good points. I think the Boston lineup, questions are really, really interesting in part because I don't really feel like I know the answers to them. Um, Clearly, Joe Missoula prefers starting small. And like I said, that lineup is plus nine. Rob Williams, I I thought his impact on the game and stretches last night, particularly on defense, got better as the game went on. The Celtics are minus 30. In 83 minutes with Rob on the floor. And they were minus 6 last night. I don't quite know what to read into that. And just every combination is bad. Al and Rob together. The double big look. Minus 20 and 15 minutes. Grant Williams and Rob Williams. Just minus 3. So that's kind of neutral. Rob is the only big man in this series. Has been kind of meh. Minus 5 per 100 possessions. According to Ben Falk at Cleaning the Glass. Good for the whole playoffs. So maybe that's something to look at too. And... The Grant Williams ingredient, which was just so long overdue, I never understood it, I, has been huge the last two or three games, was big against Philly, and I just thought it was interesting that they closed with him on the floor last night in place of Derek White, and you could feel the heat searching around on offense and be like, huh, we no longer have the lighter guy, the skinnier guy yeah. for Jimmy to poke at. And now we don't really have anybody for Jimmy to poke at. And Derek White's an all-defense player, Adam first-team all-defense, but in this matchup, he's the guy that's getting bullied. And it just felt you could feel the heft of the Celtics without him and with Grant Williams on the floor at the four, and Miami kind of searching around for like, huh, we don't really have any any place to go here. So I don't know what the right answer is. It's probably a mix of everything depending on who's on the floor. Like Rob can play when Zeller's on the floor. The the brief Rob Williams guarding Caleb Martin experiment has failed in this series. I w- I would be wary of that. Uh, and the other thing you mentioned, Jalen Brown, um, team worst minus forty with Jalen Brown on the floor in this series, and they are losing the Brown not Tatum minutes. Uh, by I had Ben Falk look this up. It's only 40 possessions, so it's not very many minutes because Tatum's obviously playing a ton of minutes. The Celtics in those minutes with Brown and not Tatum, 78 points per 100 possessions, 135 points allowed per 100 possessions. So that's like minus a gazillion. Those, Those minutes are nervy minutes, and I don't know what the proper alignment is. I do know that I get nervous when it's Brown, no Tatum, and Rob Williams is the only big man because I just don't think there's enough playmaking on the floor. I would like Horford and or Grant Williams to be out there for a little bit more playmaking. Um, but I don't. I finding the right balance of when to play who is going to be really interesting in Game Five for for Joe Mazzulla, who called an emergency timeout in the middle of a possession that was dying <laughs> out.
1: Oh, there we go. Um, the most the, always... the most
0: anticipated and hyped timeout of the season by any coach, I think.
1: It was, yeah, it was, it was a real moment there. I think that I'm a fan of the double big lineup, and I, I know when I'm coming on Professor Lowe's podcast, you can't, you can't roll up on vibes alone. I did a little research. Uh, no, that I don't, I don't know, I don't
0: know, I don't know how to feel about it. It's that yeah. I've been a fan of it too. I thought it was really good against Philly. I don't think it fits this series quite as well as I said after the first game. But I'm interested to hear your take. Please go.
1: I just. I, I mean, I look at the numbers and I, I, it's it's obvious that the smaller lineup is doing very well and the double big lineup is not. And I don't know if that's because when Jalen is not scoring and now you have both Jalen and Rob out there, uh, you're, you're too weak offensively. Um, because, you know, when you look at Jimmy and who he's picking on, to your other point, Rob Williams is doing his job protecting the paint against Jimmy Butler. Uh, and so is Al Horford, by the way. Uh, Derek White, you mentioned, they're targeting Derek White on defense. Um, So really, this Celtics postseason, I think the most two common starters that are sort of toggling spots is Derek White and Rob. Uh, Grant Williams is being this sort of wild card there. Uh, But yeah, Jimmy does go at Derek the most. Uh, He's 8 of 15 against Derek. He hasn't shot that many times against anybody else in the series, even though Derek's not really his primary matchup. Um, But... Rob, is he's 4 of 14. So I look at Rob, obviously, as a rim protector. My biggest question is, what the heck is going on with Jalen Brown, dude? You just mentioned those stunning stats. I mentioned the stunning jump shooting stats. If the Celtics want to come back in this series, they're going to need Jalen Brown to be Jalen Brown. Uh, that's it. And, and he has not been that guy. Well, that, uh, so that's I'm, what I meant yeah.
0: by your your margin for error is down to, to zero. Your, your, <laughs> your ability to absorb another Jalen Brown clunker is, is very, very low and in fact relies on other things happening like the Heat having a clunker, Jimmy having another blah game, although he finished with 29 last night, he missed a lot of bunnies I think that he would normally make, Tatum having a monster game, whatever it is, but yeah, he, he's they're not winning three more games if Jalen Brown doesn't have a game in there somewhere and in the other yeah. games is at least like okay to good. The
1: other, the other small stat that I'll throw out that's sort of a red flag for Jalen is he's 4-9 from the free throw line. And he missed a free throw last night and and Reggie Miller knows a thing or two about shooting on the broadcast. is like, I think his hands bother and something like that. Uh, that tracks with the jump shooting numbers. Um, he, he looks like Jalen Brown athletically. The shots just aren't going in. Uh, but those, this is this, Joe Missoula's leaned into jump shooting uh, with this team, with this rotation. So exactly right. They're going to and need they, more from Jalen's jump shooting. And streak. they
0: got 45 threes last night because of the ball movement, because they played with pace. I thought that was big, not just off the turnovers, off makes, off misses. And one of my favorite possessions was, I think Tatum was bringing the ball up after a miss. And Grant Williams just waited for him at half court and set a pick for him at half court. And he didn't see it coming. Caleb Martin got stuck on the pick, and the chain reaction from that led to someone else getting an open three. I thought their pace was snappy, their variety – was snappy and they're going to need to play like that. Like the heat will not allow for anything less. The heat will not allow for a C plus. Oh, we kind of just kind of lost our plot on offense for a quarter and a half. You know, maybe we can get it back in the fourth quarter. Oh, we made 10 defensive mistakes, just sloppy miscommunications, but we'll get it. Well, that's all right. We're the Celtics. Like the heat are not allowing for that. And the being down three Oh, and now three, one, doesn't allow for that either and I thought they hit a lot of the right buttons on offense and kept hitting them didn't stop yeah. pressing them didn't forget they were there kept hitting them and if they keep doing that if they you're not always gonna make shots but if they keep hitting the right buttons they got a chance to win game five obviously and if you win game mm-hmm. five you're you're in the game now like that that's that then it's just everything comes down to that game six just keep pressing the right buttons. If they throw the joystick in the garbage and forget that the buttons are there, the heat are going to go to Boston and win game five and go to the finals.
1: Yeah. And for me, there is a good trend again to alarm the, the heat fans that the Celtics are getting more and more threes as this series continues to go. And and I think they had their series high 45, three point attempts last night. Forget the makes like they're feeling good about getting those shots. And this team is very difficult to beat when they get those shots because, generally speaking, they make them at a high rate. Again, they rank second in the league in three pointers made and sixth in the league in three point percentage. A lot of volume and efficiency. If they get going at home, that's a win for them from the three point line. But from Miami's perspective, they're going to need another dud from the three point line. You know, game one, 10 threes. Game two, 10 threes. Game three, 11 made threes for Boston. They need another one of those, and this series is over. There's no room for error. But how do you do that? And I think what we've seen some of the, the the defenses against the Boston Celtics do over the last few years is, yeah, force them to beat you inside the arc. And, and, and we've seen the Warriors do that. We've seen uh, the Sixers even try to do that to a degree. Can Miami win one of these games with a defensive adjustment? I don't know.
0: Last question. Many are aware that you... Spent several seasons with the San Antonio Spurs. Yeah. Without naming names, what's the first phone call you had post the Spurs winning the lottery with anybody from that organization? Was it just <laughs> someone screaming into the phone incoherently? I mean, they're getting Wembenyama, man. Like, that's, that's like, I, I yeah. just need to know, because you still got a lot of friends there. I just need to know, was someone weeping? Um, You know, I just remember, like, when Croatia made uh, its run to to the World Cup final in twenty eighteen, obviously we're watching all these YouTube videos of Croatians celebrating, and I th- they they um, they beat England. Maybe it was when they won the quarterfinals on penalty kicks. This video went viral of a Croatian guy opening his window picking up an armchair and just throwing it out the window. Like he just completely <laughs> lost his So He picked up like a giant recliner and just threw it out the window. And I was like, I love this guy. I pictured like somebody doing that is basically yeah. what I
1: want. This is the guy, uh, my friend, uh, he runs the Spurs draft model, a close friend of mine. Um, and he went from one of the most stressful, hardest jobs of his career <laughs> to, I don't really have to come into work for the next month or two and he went for like reasons to 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 not like Yam. oh, you know, like we're not going to get the pick. And these guys are obviously analytical thinkers, Zach, and they're the first to remind you, we only have a 14% chance. We actually have a 16% chance of getting four or five whatever the numbers were at the time. These dudes were the happiest. I called them right away cuz you can put down the draft model at least for the first round uh because we know what we're going to do and that is a huge Load. And then you know, I tried to call RC, but it was his birthday and he had better people to talk to than me. So then I called my friend and your friend, Shea Serrano, who's sort of the mascot of Spurs fandom in San Antonio. And he was ecstatic. And we screamed at each other on the phone for a while. It was a great moment. A lot of people from every corner of the city and the in the organization are thrilled. Apologies to the rest of the NBA who thinks this was fixed or were spoiled or luck oh, stop, has struck stop, too stop, many stop, times. Stop. But it was a great moment for a proud organization, a proud set of basketball fans. Um, but, yeah, I think you would appreciate the draft model guy. Essentially, Evan, he's work done for him now. He See, usually has the hardest job in June.
0: I think he should go the other way and rework his draft model so that it has Wembenyama as, like, the seventh pick. <laughs> and submit it to RC Buford and Brian Wright, and be like, "Hey, you know, I've I've raised some concerns here. I really think you guys need to look at this methodology, and it's all faulty. And he just like rigs it, but just to see, just to see their reaction.
1: Yeah, one of the things that he has to do right now is look at all these weird inputs too. His job gets harder and harder because now he has like." uh Guys from uh, the G League, obviously, Scoot, the Thompsons. What stats are we using for these guys? It's all unreliable. But to your point, we can turn knobs and levers to make this thing say what we want. Turns out, you know, the Thompsons are the best or the Scoot is the best. Brandon Miller's the best. That's not going to happen, though. We have another European uh, prospect coming into San Antonio, and that usually spells good things for the Spurs and uh, the city of San Antonio.
0: Kirk Goldsberry, thank you for your time. We will eagerly be watching uh, game five tomorrow. I will be in the building at the whatever the TD Garden is called now. Uh, it's going to be fun. Thank you, sir. Stay quiet on the quiet car. Because of the eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. All right, let's deviate from the conference finals for a bit and talk about the conference finals that just ended. Dave McMenamin, our Lakers ace reporter, how are you, sir?
2: I'm doing well, Zach. Great to be here with you.
0: So I want the full scene of <clears throat> when LeBron says at the podium, expresses some uncertainty That he would play next season, that he might retire, hinting that he he did the R word I don't think was ever said, but hinted that retirement was a possibility. And then you track him down somewhere in the bowels of crypto.com, somewhere in the in the crypt. I want the whole scene. Are you running? Where is the side conversation you have with him? What is your reaction and the room's reaction when he says what he says at the podium? I need the full – I need to know who was there. Are any Rambai around? or Is Palinka <laughs> nearby? Is Adam Sandler lurking? I need all of it.
2: So, Zach, start with the podium. Uh, my initial question to him was when you look at what you have with this group, do you feel like you kind of have the pieces in place moving forward next year? to compete for a championship, because obviously he's made it clear that that is the priority number one uh, so long as he's going to continue to play. And basically, like, my head's not even there yet. So I quickly pivoted, asked about Denver. He gave you know, a nice answer. Chris Haynes ended up asking about next year later on in the presser. And again, he was like, well, I don't know how many guys we have under contract. And so it was very much evasive towards next year. And then I think Melissa Rowland's question ultimately led to his answer saying, well, you know, I just got a lot to think about. Now, I had planned to try to get him after game four to ask about the foot, you know, because I'd kind of checked in on that at various times, and it was basically – it wasn't the right time. He didn't feel like he wanted to talk about it. Um, I was like, well, this is the last time I'm going to see him, maybe until he plays a Julie League game or something like that again this summer. So I might as well ask it. So I got into a double, couple of foot questions as we were walking to you know they, the big auxiliary press room set up for the conference finals cuz there's hundreds of media members in town in Los Angeles to cover it. He comes out of the room, he's greeted by Randy Mims, uh, he's greeted by uh, Damon Jones who was was a you know uh, assistant um, on the staff this year for teammate of his. Uh, he's greeted by a Nike executive. Um, and then he kind of makes his way out. Now, he, as John Ireland, the Lakers play-by-play man, mentioned on a podcast recently, and it kind of got some some buzz, uh, he has his documentary crew also following him on his way out. Uh, Andy Thompson, who's Clay Thompson's uncle, a long time, a great, great um, videographer and, and journalist for NBA Entertainment, um, is kind of behind the camera, and they had the boom mic going. And so, as I've asked him in, in various situations over the last several years where the documentary crew is going, more often than not, he will say yes because he's gathering material. You know, so Usually if, if I'm going to ask him something along his nature, i, I got to check to see if he's willing to go there and talk about it. And he's like, yeah, okay, what do you got? And so we're making our way out the tunnel down um, towards the stairs that you take from the street level down into the bowels of the arena and then you follow down the ramp to where the player vehicles are. And I'm like, so what am I supposed to do with that? You got stuff to think about. What's the thread I'm supposed to pull at? He said, if I want to play or not. I'm like, as in next year? He goes, yeah. I go, so you'd really walk away? He goes, that's what I got to think about. And it was almost like, all right. um, I walk back up the ramp i'm processing what he just told me i know i have sports center hits to write uh to to, to to do i know i have a, a new story to write of what happened in the game but it's like what do i do with this information um and immediately found marcus vandenberg my editor and, and we started the wheels turning on the story
0: are you guys in motion walking and talking during this brief Walk. this is he is he serious is he smiling at you like you gotta ask me this huh or is he dead dead serious
2: no pretty dead serious like that and there's times when certainly he'll have like a twinkle in his eye like as he says something it wasn't that um you know it wasn't like his tone was devastated and it, it certainly i i've seen lebron um drop hints or drop information um knowing how the wheels of the media machine works hoping where it goes places. It didn't feel like that either. Uh, Felt like a guy who was exasperated both mentally and physically from a long season and is recognizing as things like his idol in the NFL, Tom Brady, or I don't know if idol's the right word, but his, his contemporary who he drew inspiration from. And Tom Brady retired, his longtime friend, um, Carmelo Anthony retired and his kids are getting older and there's less and less chances to you know spend time with them around the house. So Bronny's now going to be the college freshman at USC. Just kind of assessing, is it all worth it? Uh, everything I go through, all the sacrifices I make, um, you know, what's that carrot left on the stick? And it had been over the last several years that the carrot on the stick was, I want to play with my son, Bronny, in the NBA. But in the second round against the Warriors, he even softened that stance. He said, "Listen, that's my goal, uh, but I don't know if that's Bronny's goal, and, and I'm here to support whatever Bronny wants to do." And so I, I think I think it's very natural. Now I, I actually was almost surprised that it took till year twenty till we have these conversations because think of NFL quarterbacks, think of. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm a Syracuse uh, alum and, and Coach Bayheim retired this year. And, and for years, that was the annual conversation of Phil Jackson. I covered him late in his career. Um, it was almost an annual conversation. Will he want to come back again? I'm surprised that it took to this moment where we open up the door for that LeBron conversation.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's played 20 seasons. I mean, this is the dialogue about LeBron for a lot of these playoffs, in- including here, although I hope reasonably was. You know how he's got to parcel out like the full throttle, paint, bully ball, freight train, LeBron. Like he can't do that every quarter, every game, every possession anymore. And there's always these demands in the game. Like why isn't he going in the paint more? Why isn't he going in the paint more? And, it, and and that's why. I mean, he is twenty seasons in. He's within six hundred minutes of passing Kareem for the most minutes ever played, regular season and playoffs combined. So if he comes back, he's going to pass him within half a season as playing more minutes of NBA basketball than any human has ever played. Um, He is the leader in postseason minutes by a mile. He he has played the equivalent of four extra regular seasons of playoff basketball. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, you can't go to the paint all the time anymore. He can't just like back down Andrew Wiggins 100 times a game. He just doesn't have doesn't have that in him because he's played more basketball than any human ever in the history of earth um has played. All of that said, you and I have probably spent a lot of the last 24 hours talking to people. Do you actually think he's going to retire after the season?
2: My gut says no. Um you know, I had a source close to LeBron. I spoke to him yesterday so the day after I spoke to LeBron about those retirement comments and he said, you know, he's been around LeBron for years and and this time of year, he's just very raw, like coming off uh, a losing season and, you know, obviously a successful season in many people's eyes, but losing season meaning like he wasn't holding up Larry O'Brien trophy at the end of it. And all sorts of thoughts run through his head. I mean, he's like, and I've had conversations about him this time of year and it's 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 roster moves uh you know that he thinks in the moment need to be made and settles down a bit and and you know the mind frame changes and so you know i i think we will know for sure probably won't be for a month maybe even two months uh he's going to take some time here to be away from it um you know get that Foot checked out. He told me he's going to get an MRI on it and check to see how the tendon's healing. Obviously, he was recommended surgery back in February, and we'll see if that act ends up being the route that he has to go. And as we've seen over you know, several of the last summers, he starts following his children on their basketball AAU tournaments in the summertime, and he's told me about how that reinvigorated uh, his love of the game lights that spark again. So I imagine come, you know come July, if not sooner, uh, he'll be champing at the bit to go in for season 21. But I I, I certainly, you know, I, I've seen some people interpret his his words as a leverage play. I've seen it interpreted as a, a cry for attention. I really don't, I really don't believe it was either of those two things. I, I think it was a guy who is openly, starting to question his basketball existence. And that's something that he was able to keep at bay for so long. Um, but that's why guys do retire because ultimately you can't keep those thoughts at bay at some point.
0: Do we know what the timetable, a uh, recovery timetable would be if he has foot surgery, what that would be?
2: I don't. Um Back in, in February, it was suggested that, you know, if he got it done, um, it'd be, you know, very dicey whether he'd be able to return in time for the playoffs or not. So I think you're you're probably looking at a couple months um, in range.
0: You know, I, there's reason to be skeptical of LeBron's motivations in saying in saying something like this because he has not been shy in the past about sometimes passive aggressively, sometimes aggressively aggressively tweaking his respective front offices to do stuff. But I actually like not it's not like I know LeBron and spend an enormous amount of time physically in LeBron's orbit talking to people. But I I didn't have that reaction to these comments like, oh, he's trying to seize the attention from the Nuggets and the finals or, oh, he's leveraging Rob Polinka into trading two first round picks and Rui Hachimura sign and trade for blah, blah. I actually don't. I think LeBron's views on the roster are are pretty well known. Like, I, I think his urgency to win now, um, his potential interest in playing with Kyrie Irving, like that. I think we all know that. Like, I don't really think there's much leveraging left for him to do. I think Rob Polinka is well aware that LeBron would like him to construct a championship ready roster one way or another next year. And if LeBron thinks that that roster should include Kyrie Irving, I think he's probably already made that known. If he thinks it should not include X, Y, and Z, I think he's probably made that known. I don't really think any more public pressure is is super necessary. So I, I, I did not, I, from afar, and then having talked to people around him, just interpreted it as sort of the post-game musings of a guy who just played 47 minutes and 56 seconds and scored 40 points in an elimination game and had nothing left. Probably had felt like if there were a game five, man, that would be a tough recovery process for me. And he and he did, you know, he did leave it all. He did leave it all out there. But um, that, that's how I that's how I, I mean, LeBron's wishes are not are not going to be secret. The other thing that I, I someone told me yesterday was, uh, by the way, I've heard the same as you like I, it, you can't. It's actually interesting how this was a bombshell for like a second. And then it became like not a bombshell. Like you, It's hard to find anyone around the league who actually thinks he's going to retire. I did have one person tell me that if they had won the title this year, it wouldn't have surprised him if LeBron had just decided, I'm going out on top, that's it for me, bye. Uh, but they didn't. And so, I, I mean, I'm operating under the assumption that he's coming back next year. I think the Lakers were and are. And if, if he's not then a whole, like, a lot of other questions start to come to, like, do you just trade Anthony Davis and get out of this whole thing? Um, but I'm assuming he's coming back.
2: Yeah. Um, and just on, on the other point, I wanted to bring up the, the Denver, uh, try to take attention from Denver. He went above and beyond, in my estimation, in praising Denver in the game four post game, And I've been at the finale of countless playoff series LeBron was involved with whether he lost to the team or beat the team. And there are many instances where he showers praise and gives respect. And there's other times when he just keeps it moving. He stopped in the moment. He literally tipped his cap (laughs) to Denver, took off his uninterrupted hat and, and to show respect said that that team was in his estimation, the best team that him and Anthony Davis have faced in their four years together as teammates with the Lakers. So, uh, I I just wanted to put a point on that that it wasn't in my estimation about trying to take attention or credit or anything away from the Denver Nuggets.
0: He also has never been shy about tweaking a team that he feels uh, was beneath his team after elimination. Most famously, the Raptors when he said, "Yeah, I've been in adverse situations before." That wasn't <laughs> That's one so of amazing. them. That's, that was an all time. That was an all time like. Whoa, like you kind of didn't notice it at first, how bad of a dig it was at the, at the poor Raptors didn't at the Raptors didn't ask to run into the LeBron train <laughs> every year. They're just trying to build a nice basketball team, um, in Canada. Uh, let's talk about the Lakers future. Um, They made the conference finals. This year was a success. Like, it was a success based on where they started. It was a success even based on where they ended the regular season. To get to the conference finals, they beat the Grizzlies. And I know the Grizzlies are missing players and going through some turmoil, but they beat them. They beat the Warriors, who won the championship last year. Like, those are quality series wins. I don't think. And, you know, going into the offseason, LeBron, Davis, Reeves is coming back by hook or by crook and if you if you end up going a little bit into the tax to build this next version of the team what there's no point in having LeBron James on your team if you're not willing to go a little bit into the tax if that's what it ends up being it might actually be hard for them to do that LeBron Davis Reeves and then from there I think they have some decisions to make but I don't think like if they're healthy and they build it out the right way look they're not going to be favorites in the west next year the nuggets are not going anywhere but the Suns are not going anywhere. We have to see how they build out their team, and you just go up and down the standings. Like Memphis, turmoil, Kings, good. Let's see how much better they get. Clippers, I, I'm, I'm just we all. I don't not, don't even have to say what the question about the Clippers is. Warriors, you know, run it back. What does that look like? I'm just going straight down the standings. Mm-hmm. Timberwolves, okay. Thunder, I expect them to get a lot better next year. That much better. Pelicans, the big fella ever gonna play? Dallas and Portland, I think loom is interesting. How aggressively do they try to go for it? Um, you know, are their picks gonna be in play? And obviously Dallas has a much discussed point guard free agent on their team. Like I, I don't think it's crazy to look at that landscape and think if we build it out the right way, we're not gonna be favorites barring injury to somebody else. We're gonna have our own injury concerns always with LeBron and Anthony Davis. That's just a way of life for us. They're not as bad as the Clippers endless injury concerns, but they're pretty, they're pretty, they're, 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 they are complicating factors, but Hey, let's, we got enough goods to make a run to give ourselves a shot. You're in the conference finals against the Denver Nuggets. All four of the games were close. Didn't win any of them, but they were all close. Not like they were like outclassed by a mile as a team. Um, I, I think they have their pick this year they have a 2029 pick to trade they have potential cap room although it's really Hachimura or cap room that's really the choice um they have some optionality I I know Rob Polinka has said we're going to try to build with what we've got we're going to we're going to prioritize continuity I've interpreted that as his wishes are we want to bring back Reeves, and his cap hold is so low that that's a no-brainer. His cap hold's low. You save him for last. You have a lot of room if you renounce Hachimura and you renounce Russell. Now, to me, I, I just don't—D'Angelo Russell is take it or leave it to me. I don't—I'm don't. i don't, I'm not prioritizing him. I, I understand I need ball handling around LeBron. If if it's him or cap space, I'm taking cap space and see what I can get. Obviously, you do due do, do diligence first to see what your cap space can get. Hachimura is an interesting one um, because it really is a cold calculating choice. If you re-sign Hachimura, you do not have cap space. And the only way you turn that slot into another player is then signing and trading, maybe double sign and trade. And Hachimura's probably got to be involved in that too. He was great in the playoffs. Great. Like making Wiz fans vomit in their He's bathrooms. Cool. Great. Um, his skill set's interesting. Size, some shooting, some mid-range scoring. I don't know if the three-point shooting was real. It was a little bit crazy, but I, I mean, is that is that the is that Plan A?
2: Plan A is that, and uh, Adrian Wojnarowski and I spoke about it on his podcast. I wrote it yesterday after the exit interviews, but the Lakers have intentions of bringing both those guys back, uh, Austin and Rui, and doing whatever. I don't know, whatever it costs, but um, really that's what they want to happen because they view them both as as young culture pieces uh, who are tangible representations of of who they want to be as a franchise um, going forward and players that they view that can be LeBron and AD players or beyond LeBron and AD players as well. And um, listen, I understand the reticence um when you describe it uh if Rui means taking yourself out of the potential Kyrie Irving sweepstakes like that's yeah that's punitive in a way um but I guess it comes down to how realistic we view the Kyrie Irving sweepstakes to be in the first place
0: yeah and you do your you, you know that answer before you make any kind of decision right. on Rui obviously um so there's Kyrie there's Fred Van Vliet who is another clutch client and there's what the Lakers want and there's what LeBron wants and those may not always be aligned so I'm like LeBron I mean when they had Russ on the team LeBron like publicly begged them to go acquire Kyrie Irving like it was uh not subtle um I I just I, I and I don't know what Kyrie Irving wants I know what Dallas wants they want to they want to bring Kyrie Irving back and maybe they just offer so much money that this because in so many years that this becomes a non-starter. But I do think like, I don't know what LeBron wants. I don't know what LeBron's team wants, but I don't get the sense that that side of the equation has shut the door on a Kyrie Irving pursuit, at least like can not, not signing, but at least like investigating the possibility of it. I think there's a certain level of confidence that yes, that thing has failed in Boston, in Brooklyn, and for a brief time so far in Dallas, we can make it work. And, and to me, it's, it's only like, I've been team. I don't, I'm, I've, when Dallas traded for Kyrie, I was like, I'm just out. I'm out. Like, I'm just, I wouldn't have him on my team. I understand why LeBron, his experience might make him, feel differently about his confidence level but I do think the interesting thing about the two paths is 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 Reeves and whatever I can get on the point guard market for the minimum Schroeder you know whoever the next guy is is that enough ball handling around LeBron like if all we're talking about right now is LeBron can't do it every possession AD doesn't have like a lot of a, enough self creation to his game as much as as much as people dream of him maybe becoming an Embiid or a Jokic type of just give me the ball let me create a shot that's just not who he is is that enough ball handling because that's the piece that Kyrie brings that I think LeBron part of him probably craves
2: and there's the recognition of uh, we can exist in each other's or- orbits and, and that's very important um, because we've seen some other. High-profile players not work um, alongside LeBron, and, and that's has to be a consideration here. And you know, and I think there would also be the unification of purpose uh, if it was to occur. You know, LeBron is desperate to get a fifth ring, and it, it seems based on the stories we heard about Brooklyn that you know Kyrie Irving really wanted to win another one. Um, you know, he was trying to do it with KD, and KD could do it without the Warriors and Kyrie could do it without LeBron. Well, guess what? That didn't work. And so you go get another it did one. Not, well. It did not work. It didn't work. That is a correct <laughs> assessment of the Brooklyn time, Nets super though, team. It, for a brief time, it was the best offensive team in NBA history. As, as you have so often reminded us. It was us the best of NBA times. It was the worst of times.
0: <laughs> it was the age of belief. It was the age of incredulity. Tale of two cities. Oh, wow. I'm quoting I mean, tale of two
2: cities. Very somehow well somehow Kyrie well. has
0: gotten me there.
2: Uh, but I, I think, the distillation of purpose that the Lakers had last season from the one meeting as a group to make the play in and dig out of that hole. And then beyond that, some of these role players, like an Austin Reeves, Rui Hachimura, like fighting for their futures and recognizing every time they perform in this spotlight, there's going to be financial security on the other end. How do you recreate that? Right. If you just brought the same group back and you're zero and zero, you say, oh, yeah, we got a training camp this time. But. Can you get that shared purpose going again? And that's why I do think there has to be something to jumpstart this um, beyond just, um, you know, the average roster tweaks that every franchise goes through. Um, and that's perhaps why a, a Kyrie edition could make sense, because it it would shift the energy and add some urgency um, versus, hey, we got to the conference finals with this group. We get to know each other uh, even better. We're going to get back there. Like, I, I think that's kind of folly.
0: I love what Rui did in the playoffs. If it comes down to Rui Hachimura or Fred Van Vliet, I'm taking Fred Van Vliet. I I think I might just rather have Fred Van Vliet than Kyrie Irving because I just again I can't go back on my stance that if if I were running a team I just wouldn't have him on it. That's my personal whatever. Um, I understand I'm sacrificing size. I'm not sacrificing that much depth though. If I can bring back Reeves, if I hit a draft pick or if Max Christie's ready to do something, I keep Vanderbilt around. It's just to sop up some regular season minutes and you know be a Swiss Army knife matchup wise. Maybe the room exception allows me to bring back Lonnie Walker or another quality player. Like, I I think I can, I think I'd rather go the ball handling, not star, like Fred Van Vliet's not a star star. I realize he's an all star, but like good, dependable ball handler, take a lot of the burden off LeBron, not shift too much of it to Reeves, not overburden Reeves. I think I like that a little bit better. But, I again, this is all very fresh. I haven't thought it out that much.
2: So just a quick aside on Max Christie. He finishes his exit uh, interview, inter- uh, you know, press time yesterday and is walking out, and we kind of say our pleasantries before we go away from somewhere. I think he's going to play the Lakers Summer League team, so I'll see him there. But so often my conversations with him over the last several months have been him sitting at his locker and me standing up. But so in this case, we're both standing up, looking each other in the face, and I'm like, "Did you grow taller?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, I grew, I grew a little bit this year. So maybe he could help with the size I mean, he keeps growing. But I mean, he's already put on muscle. Um, but yeah, he looks like more like a, you know, a rangy wing um, than strikes you as, as as a guard that he was at Michigan State. Just a quick aside."
0: What's the organization's view on Anthony Davis right now? Because in my opinion, the media discourse around Anthony Davis has just spun into la-la land, no pun intended. Like, what's the organization's, like, take? I mean, the, the injuries are one thing. He's, he falls a lot. He's going to get injured. He's going to miss 25, 30, whatever games. But, like, do they – like, there's all these people. Are they, what, what trade could they make, like, for Anthony Davis? What fake trade is out there? Like, okay. I mean, I, what's their internal view?
2: Rob Blinken just said this yesterday, based off a question I asked him. Uh, LeBron James and Anthony Davis as a tandem, they view as unmatched in the league, unparalleled. And you know, obviously, that's a very rosy way to look at it because the rest of us do know the injury history. And we do know the age of of LeBron, but Anthony Davis was so vital to Darvin Ham being able to implement his defensive system uh and have that team adopt the mentality that that really was you know the entire presentation that Darvin brought with him uh in order to kind of get the job as they went through several candidates was oh, we can be dominant defensively around Anthony Davis Anthony Davis allowed that vision to occur and yeah there was some internal kind of murmuring, uh, to use a word that I think I've heard you use before, That, and I'm talking a year ago or whatever, that oh, can this ever happen again if AD can't stay right? And is some of him not staying right bad luck? And is some of it him not doing the same things to prepare his body the way like a LeBron James does? I, you know, those murmurs have gotten quieter over the last year, the people I speak to. And I think there's a recognition that uh, he has made strides in terms of his program away from game days in order to keep his body in the best possible position to perform. And some of that is the influence factor from LeBron James, um, which, you know, that's all you want, right? If you're going to invest in, in a LeBron and invest in in a trade sacrificing young talent to get a guy like Anthony Davis you hope that Anthony Davis can benefit from from everything that LeBron has to offer and at, at this stage that appears to be lockstep um you know will Anthony Davis be the 15 and 20 guy he was um for that you know beautiful spell in New Orleans I don't think so for the rest of his laker days no but you know the, the on again, off again narrative. I pushed back against that throughout the playoffs. Um, he doesn't control the ball; he needs to get it from others. And his defensive impact was consistently fantastic. And, and so yeah, the Lakers feel very good about Anthony Davis right now.
0: Yeah, I'm tired. I'm tired of the subject matter. Frankly, one of my pet peeves about it is that defense is just kind of like squeezed in to a mini clause of a longer sentence at the end of the fifth paragraph about Anthony Davis. And it's like, no, it's actually kind of a big deal that he was the best defensive player in the entire playoffs. And the Lakers could construct entire defensive game plans around him and other teams had to change their entire offensive game plans to account for him. That's not a dot, dot, dot parenthetical in the midst of like, why doesn't he score 30 points every game now? The why doesn't he score 30 points every game discussion is an interesting one, and I think one worth having because he is not, and I don't think ever was, someone who was going to be the number one ball handling, ball control option on an offense and take the baton from LeBron in that sense. As you just said, like many, like basically every big man except Embiid and Jokic. He's going to need people to feed him floaters, pick-and-pop jumpers, lobs, all of that big man stuff. Would I like if someone with his level of feel and athleticism and speed had developed a more reliable face-up game, something that I can bank on, a well I can go down more often than they can with AD? Sure, I would. It hasn't happened, so it's not going to happen, I don't think. And that's fine. he still puts up like twenty five twenty seven twenty nine in the playoffs twenty three a game. It's not you know that that's that's not eight points a game. That's like a lot of points. um I wish that he had evolved in some way to like five percent more in that way a little bit more. That's fine. that's fair. That's a fair criticism to me, the real fair criticism and why he has been inconsistent on offense, and why everybody longs for bubble Anthony Davis to return again, the 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 bulwark against that level of inconsistency is his jump shot. And his jump shot has just fallen off since the bubble. It's never come back to its peak form. And it used to be a semi-reliable weapon for him. And if you want to know why he's 30, 18, 23, 25, 16, it's that his jumper is not reliable. And so... I don't know how to fix that. I hear everyone talking about his conditioning and getting his body in peak shape, and that's obviously important and more important as you go. I don't know what he's got to do to get that jumper to be better back to where it was five years ago. I, I don't know. But if you want Anthony Davis to be a more consistent source of points, if it bothers you on some fundamental level that he goes from 40 to 15 to 23, whatever it is, that, to me is is the riddle that the Lakers and he have to solve, and I, I just don't know what the answer to that is,
2: and it's bizarre because his free throw shooting really hasn't fallen off. And it, you know his free throw you see his form. He has a really nice shooting form. Uh, and you can extend that from fifteen feet. To the mid range, and then you can get that Amari Stoudemire, Karl Malone, Patrick Ewing. Extend your career from the mid range game thing. The three would be nice, and we saw it obviously in in the bubble and and prior to that. I, I don't. I wish I had a explanation for it because it doesn't make sense to me. Even in that Denver game, game two, he hits the corner three. The next two looks might have been. As open or or even better, um, misses the one from the top of the key, misses another one from the corner. Um, you know, there has to be some level of because he's missed so many at this point that that there's a mental block that he has to get through as well. That's my theory. There he's never told me that, but because the form still looks good, you know, like it's not like and it doesn't change from the free throw to the three. Um, so there it, it, it has to be some level of he doesn't believe he's going to make it when he lets it go. And confidence this is the biggest X factor in the NBA. Well,
0: and he has, I actually think he has a face-up game and not just like in the post or the triple threat position, but a face-up game that I think he doesn't utilize enough. And I don't know if it's the Lakers or him, but like he can bring the ball up the floor, rake and take, he can run like an occasional pick and roll. Like I would try to do that five or six times a game. Like just give him the ball and see what happens and sometimes he's not going to look like super graceful doing it but he can do it and he's fast and athletic and i think maybe if the jumper never comes back to where it was or back to where you're saying maybe it could be maybe that's another ingredient to tap into it doesn't maybe it doesn't look like classic big man center self-creation or whatever but it's something i i i think it's fair to to nitpick like He's never become X, Y, and Z, and I think there was a hope early in his career that he could develop that kind of one-on-one, you know, really deep fountain of moves and stuff. But he, but, but I don't know. To me, it's more about the jump shot than anything else. And the defense is like, you can't, you just can't wave it away. Like it's, a, it's a huge deal. And this team was not a good offensive team really for any point this season. They got where they got because of their defense, and maybe he's a part of why the team is not. A good offensive team or a great offensive team, part of it is also like they just don't have great spacing about the LeBron, around the LeBron AD two-man game. And if they did, it would look a lot better. That's why they had to minimize Vanderbilt's limits as they went. But you also can't just not credit him for what their defense was.
2: Yeah, and there's one more point on his offense. The face-up game, you did see it some um, where he would get the ball and the foul line extended and, and kind of be able to survey things face-up, use his pivot foot. But I I I know I, I don't know if this was the first coach to exploit that, but I know from that point on, other coaches did as well. Ty Lue started throwing doubles in that Clippers game where they beat the Lakers on the second half of it back-to-back after they – played the jazz in an overtime win whenever ad would catch it and it, it kind of showed other teams that um if ad is going to play that way and doesn't have quick decision making you can really disrupt the lakers offense by doubling him in that moment and it led to turnovers it led um the uh, offensive fouls sometimes trying to split the double um it led to just you know poor spacing bad rhythm um and so if He is going to adopt that as part of his offensive package moving forward. And, of course, I think it would benefit the Lakers to diversify him more so. Uh, Part of it's got to be the quick decision-making.
0: Agreed. Uh, The other thing, just lastly, uh, I mean, the the very simple fundamental problem about everyone, not everyone, but people trying to find AD, fake AD trades, is as long as the LeBron James is on your team, you're trying to win tomorrow if you're trading Anthony Davis, you're going to trade him to a team that's trying to win the next game, that's trying to win right now because no team that's in a rebuild mode is trading for Anthony Davis. So teams trading with each other on the same timetable is a tricky thing to do, particularly the better the player gets. The other thing is if you trade Anthony Davis, you're going to need a big man. You're going to need to find a good big man somewhere along the line, which means you're either trading him for a big man in a win Now, win now trade involving players at the same position, which is very rare, or you have to concoct a multi-trade scenario where you trade AD for X and somehow acquire another big man from over here. Like These are very hard things to do, and it's much easier to just sort of rev up the trade machine than it is to actually find something that works in real life. So my assumption is we will see the new big 3 in LA of LeBron, AD and Reeves surrounded by whatever they're surrounded by, maybe it's a star, maybe it's not, but i think all in all this has to count as a successful season for the Lakers and maybe a very successful one. I know they got swept, I know they're gone and uh LeBron dropped a little bit of a mini bombshell this week with you, but i, I it hasn't it it kind of has, you know, faded away a little bit. So, Dave McMinnem, any parting thoughts before you uh before you turn your attention to teams who are not the Lakers?
2: I guess I'll just say this, you know, Lakers uh, as an organization, it's all about 18th banner and it's about championships. And and LeBron has made it known that this is why he still plays the game. Uh, And I hope this doesn't sound like I'm advocating for participation trophies, but the version of Lakers life that this team was able to provide for everyone involved for, the front office for the fans for the players for the coaches yeah they came up eight wins away from the, the the title but it's just a much better existence um so just be careful about shooting for the moon like they did with Russell Westbrook and they put themselves in the basement um it's okay to have a really good team and that's most teams around the nba uh, are just hoping to have that and only one team's going to win it all And um, certainly it should be on everyone's minds to get this team as good as possible. But I think they have the bones in place to be a really good team. And um, that will allow LeBron James to play meaningful basketball as his career continues um, versus, you know, a guy like Kobe or many other stars. We've seen the games at the end of their career. It's performance art uh, because, you're so far down the standings that it just becomes about, hey, I hope he can make a fadeaway tonight. My team's going to beat his team by 20, you know, like right now they have a really good team and hopefully they can continue just to be a really good team. If they become a great team, that's, that's awesome. But being a really good team, is a pretty good thing.
0: Dave McMenamin, thank you for your outstanding work uh, all year. And we will hear more from you soon. Uh, I'll see you soon, buddy.
2: Yeah, it sounds good. Thanks, guys.